Um, let me pray, and then we're going to turn our attention to the Word. Father, we give you thanks for your work. We know so many people in this church family are experiencing difficulty, and you are ever merciful, gracious, good, and present. Now, as we open our hearts to your word together, we pray that Jesus would be revealed to us in a fresh way, that you would compel us, motivate us, speak to each of our souls. We pray this now in the strongest name ever, which is Jesus. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. How many of you are here for a story about Tim Horton's Roll Up the Rim? (laughs) You've got to wait all the way to the end. Anybody who thought, I'm leaving after I hear the story, it's right before communion, okay? (laughs) This is the last week of this series, You've Got a Friend in Me, and friendship is such an important topic. It's absolutely biblical. It's absolutely spiritual. Discipleship does not work without friendship. Evangelism does not work without friendship. How many of you know discipleship and evangelism are two of the highest priorities in any church? And if that matters, then friendship absolutely is critical. And I hope through these last eight weeks, we've been growing and moving in the right direction on this important topic, growing closer to one another in ways that help us to grow spiritually, growing closer to people who don't know Jesus yet, so that our friendships with them become a a bridge or a pathway for the gospel to begin touching lives. Next week, we have a very important Missions Sunday. I hope you won't miss out on that. There's probably another Tim Horton story there that you don't want to miss, so just I'll put that out there. Um, And then following that is Father's Day, and I hope we have some fun things that are part of that, including the launch, pray for us, of the Revelation series on Father's Day. So how many of you have ever wondered if we could get a little more clarity on Revelation? (laughs) Me too, and we don't have all the answers, we don't have it all figured out, but God is good and speaks through his word, and Revelation is the most astounding book in the New Testament in terms of portraying Jesus Christ to all of us, and so I think we're going to be moved wonderfully through this series out of the book of Revelation, which will begin in a couple weeks, so we look forward to that. I just want to remind some of you who were with us last week just of a few things we talked about. Last week was Pentecost Sunday, and so we spent a little bit of time in Acts chapter two, which is in the Acts story, the Jewish Pentecost, the first outpouring of the Spirit on mass. It was in Jerusalem, and there were several things that followed the outpouring of the Spirit. The gospel was being declared. It was making a difference in everyday life, and we contrasted that with Acts chapter 10, where there's another outpouring of the Spirit, and it's the Gentile or the non-Jewish Pentecost, And if you read a book like Ephesians, you find that one of the beautiful things that God is doing is bringing together all the people of the earth into one family, no longer sort of divided by Jewish and non-Jewish, but one family of faith under Christ. And there's this beautiful story in Acts chapter 10 of the church leader at the time named Peter having his heart opened to God's work of including others that previously were excluded the non-Jewish people. And so one of the thoughts that we shared last week was that everyone needs open heart surgery. Everyone. We looked at a fellow named Cornelius, and as wonderful, as good as he was, he was not yet rescued by Jesus. He needed his heart to be opened, not just to a life of goodness and trying to be good enough to earn your way towards God or heaven or whatever it may be, but his heart had to become open to Jesus himself. And that's how he came to faith, 
was by having an open heart surgery in, in himself. But how did the gospel come to him? It came through Peter, who had previously grown up in a world that was closed towards those who were non-Jewish. But Peter ended up befriending people who'd who were outside of the Jewish world, who didn't know Jesus yet as well, and his heart became open to them through great works of the Spirit in his life, and that led to him presenting the gospel to Cornelius and his household, and then the Spirit came upon that place as well. We talked a little bit last week, and I'm gonna put this um, image on the screen for you to see as well, about how we live in a very changing world, don't we? I asked the question, everybody chuckled at it. Do you think the world's changed in the last 25 years? Absolutely, it has. And so we gave some consideration to this idea that um, there has been a monumental shift, a historic shift, as we've gone from the 20th century world into a 21st century world. The 20th century world is like living on land. This is the world that many of your parents or grandparents, great-grandparents grew up in. Some of you yourself grew up in this world. Everything was stable. Everything was static, uh, rational. There was modernity. That was the philosophical idea of the age. Things were predictable. And there was an existing biblical framework that was built into our 20th century world. That's why, as I gave the example last week, somebody like Billy Graham and his ministry of opening up stadiums and presenting the gospel was so effective because largely the whole culture of the Western world had a strong Christian memory. They may not have been very engaged in their walk with God or maybe they had wandered. And that's why, although Billy Graham's messages sounded like, come just as you are to the altar and come receive Christ, essentially it was come back to God. And then we contrasted those kind of realities with the 21st century world we live in now. Sociologists and others would say, if the 20th century is like living on land, where the world we live in now is like living on water. Things are dynamic, unpredictable, constantly changing, moving, fluid. We might feel we have something figured out for a few moments and suddenly there's the next trend on social media that happens in a day and everybody's thinking a new way about something else again. And the world we live in, instead of having an existing biblical framework, now is postmodern, post-Christian, and secular. I talked about Billy Graham in the 20th century world. Some of you might remember um, a way of sharing your faith called the Romans Road. Anybody heard of that? That was taught to many people. Memorize these specific few verses in the book of Romans, and on the street, you might be able to share it to a stranger, and in that moment, they might come to Christ. In a postmodern, post-Christian secular world, the Romans Road is a tricky place to try evangelizing on the street because at first they're like, well, what's the Bible? Why should I trust that? And so you can read all the fancy verses from Romans, but they'll think, I, I don't know if that has any bearing on my life. Whereas in the 20th century world and prior, there was an existing biblical framework that at least for many people honored that the Bible had some relevance, had some authority, and oh right, I should come back to God in the Romans wrote shows me the way. A couple years ago, we did a series called Don't Sell Your Soul to the Hevel, and it was on the book of Ecclesiastes. And if there was a book in the Bible that I think is maybe one of the most compelling cases for the secular, postmodern, post-Christian world we live in, it might be actually Ecclesiastes, which just says, hey, everything's meaningless. <laughs> now what? And it, with reality and openness and transparency, evaluates all of life and sees the emptiness in all the things people pursue in life and then it kind of lands with this, well, if we've tried everything and that's what it results in, 
Here's what the writer of that work says. Fear God, trust him, know him. We live in a changing world, which means our approach in reaching people who don't know Jesus yet is changing and needs to change. We talked a little bit about how in previous generations, and again, some of these generations you grew up in, the way somebody would come to faith often was, or the evangelism strategy of a church often was, well, just invite somebody to church. And then they might hear the gospel, um, and if they receive it, then they'll start to probably feel the gospel, and if they stick around with us, then we probably start including them in community with us. And the more they're in community with us, then there's a better chance of them actually becoming our friend. That's how it worked before. What we talked about last week is that with the changes that are going on, it's actually the reverse now. In Acts chapter two, in the Jewish context, which had a very natural gospel framework, the flow of the gospel's work in Jerusalem was first proclamation followed by the end of Acts two, which was connection. In Acts chapter 10, which was a non-gospel framework setting, the first work was connection, which was then followed by proclamation of the Spirit. So what does evangelism look like for us now? Friendship is where it starts. Are you friends with people who don't know Jesus yet? Don't put up your hands when I ask this question, but how many of you have won an enemy of yours to Christ? <laughs> Generally, we're not too good at that. What needs to happen first? You need to become a friend with them. Many more of us have seen friends come to Christ. Well, isn't that ironic? Maybe we should pay attention to this. Wasn't Jesus known to be the friend of sinners, those who were far from God? Isn't that a wonderful thing to be said of God? That when he showed up in our world, he didn't show up and he's like, okay, where are the priests and the Levites and the people who are doing a really good job of being as holy as possible? I'm their friend. He did not show up like that. He showed up looking for who's most broken, who's weak, who's on the outside, who's messed up, who's figuring that life's not working, I'm not even sure if religion's working. I'll find those people, I'll be their friend. If that's what God's like, sign me up. That's amazing. The first for you and I is to build friendships with people and then include them, invite them into community with you with your friends who also follow Jesus. And you know what happens is over time, people have the opportunity to feel the gospel. And when they feel the gospel, they begin to open their hearts to hearing the gospel, which can inevitably lead to them eventually showing up at church on a Sunday sometime. So it's sort of the backward process where the end game is worshiping with us on Sundays. The start game is friendship. So I guess the question for you is, how is that going? Are you building friendships with people in this community that you see regularly who don't know Jesus yet? And by friendships, I don't mean do you work with them and see them at work all the time. It might mean what's the next step you can take. If you work with them regularly, great, but have a lunch with them. <laughs> if it's a neighbor that you, you're watering your flowers and you give them a friendly wave, that's great. Um, but Christianity is not just being Canadian nice. We learn how to become friends with people. So how can you build a friendship with a neighbor who doesn't know Jesus yet? Or somebody that you socialize with or you're doing some sort of recreational activities with. How do you build friendships with those people? Are you doing that? Are you willing to do that? I remember a friend of mine, and some of you may have heard me share a story like this earlier, who is part of a church in Vancouver. 
um, said with a group of friends that felt that they were on mission in the same kind of neighborhood together. He said, in this neighborhood we live in, there are seven Starbucks, all within about a five minutes drive. <laughs> and he said, we all are going to these Starbucks for coffees and breakfasts and stuff like that. What if, since they're all so close, what if we chose one of them? This was a small group that decided we're on mission together in our neighborhood. What if we just chose the same Starbucks and we made it our goal to get to know all the baristas and staff there over the next year? Just since they do such a good job of getting to know their customers and our drinks, why don't we get to know a little bit about them too? And so instead of spreading out to the seven, they just went to the one over and over and over again. And sure enough, everybody in their small group got to begin to know all the different staff, including one guy who lived a lifestyle quite differently than what the rest of everybody in that church community might live, but was very open relationally to these people. And so he always knew their names, he knew their orders, and they got to know his name and some of his interests and what was going on in his life. And they got close enough with him that they said, hey, we've got a New Year's party coming up. Would you ever like to come to that? Yeah, sure. Oh, you guys are like a group of friends? Yeah, we're a group of friends. Okay. So it was sort of a mixed New Year's party where there was some of the people from the small group and there were some people from Starbucks and there was just a few other friends there, maybe outside of the church, don't know Jesus yet, but it was just sort of a great, fun New Year's party. And this individual, very different lifestyle than everybody else in the small group and church community, loved the whole party, had a great time with everybody. And as the night finally wound down, it's New Year's, everybody starts cleaning up. And then people start leaving, and he, he stays, and he sits next to my friend, and he says, what? What are, you, what are you guys? What's up with you guys? Like, is there something going on? You, you guys are different. I've never been at a party like this before, and it wasn't all that different. Like, it was a New Year's party. They probably popped a champagne at midnight, and there was drinks and games and fun and all that stuff. And he said, I, I sat here watching you guys help each other all night long. You listened to each other. You cared about each other. I don't see friends behaving like this. Like, I, I've got lots of different friends, but we, and we have similar parties, but we don't care for each other like this. We don't serve each other. Why, why do you do that? And so his question gave my friend the opportunity to present a gospel kind of answer to his question. Time passed. Their friendship grew. He eventually was baptized into the faith of following Jesus Christ. And as you follow the story backwards, where did it start? Just a willingness to become friends with people who are very different than us, but friends with them, and then invite them into community. And in community, what happened? He began seeing the gospel on display by how others treat one another and care for one another, and it was like, what is going on here? Maybe you and I could learn to befriend people in a similar kind of way. We could grow in that. Today, as we go to the Word, I want to ask you to turn with me to the book of Mark. Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2, I heard like one Bible. Uh, so hopefully everybody's on their apps then. Um, Mark chapter 2, we're going to look at the first 12 verses together. As you're turning there, let me just give a little bit of context for the book of Mark. Some of you might remember, actually, a couple years ago, we did a series in the summer through the book of Mark. Though the book of Mark is called Mark, um, most scholars and historians would believe that Peter, the, the follower of Christ named Peter, um, was the one that had um, dictated the message of Mark, that it was his story, it was his recounting of his interaction and experience of Jesus. Peter traveled a lot and he would share the gospel of Jesus and some people even think that the book of Mark was maybe his preaching of the gospel of Jesus when he was in Rome. 
And so Mark, or John Mark, was a, a friend and associate of his who was helping Peter in his ministry and would write down Peter's teaching on Jesus. Hence the book called Mark. Um, the book of Mark is written in three main parts. The first eight chapters are the, about the mighty works of Jesus. Everywhere in the first eight chapters of the book of Mark, Jesus is doing amazing stuff constantly. And sometimes Mark is saying things like, the crowd was amazed by this. Everybody was astonished by this. And then from chapter 8 and 9 and 10, you see Jesus leading people who don't know where they're going in a new way. And this actually mimics some of the stuff that we see in the book of Isaiah and actually in the book of Exodus as well. It's as if Jesus is the embodiment of Israel's God, Yahweh, leading people along a path that they do not know. And then the third part of Mark, chapter 10 through 16, is where the king takes his throne in the holy city. And God's people had longed and waited for this for so long. And it unfolded in a way they did not expect. The king came to his city but experienced rejection and then was crucified and was put in a tomb. But that was him taking his throne and then he found total victory as he conquered the grave and rose from the dead as well. But this was the king assuming his throne. So in chapter two, where do we find ourselves? Well, we find ourselves in part one where what is Jesus doing? Lots of mighty things. I think as we read this story, we find a tremendous example of friendship how you and I can be a friend that help other people experience Jesus too. Let's read together beginning in verse one. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, and this is probably where Jesus' home base was at the time, the people heard that he had come home. So many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word or the message, the gospel, to them. Some men came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four of them. Since they could not get to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus and after digging through it, lowered the mat with the paralyzed man laying on it. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit what they were thinking in their hearts and he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven or to say get up and take your mat and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And he said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. And he got up, took his mat, walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone. And they praised God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. Do you see the friends at work in this story? I wonder if you and I can grow in our ability to be a friend like those four guys who brought that paralytic to Jesus. I want to share four thoughts that I see in this story. I hope that some of this will speak to your heart and help you on your journey of befriending people who don't know Jesus yet. And as you do this together with others, maybe in your life group, maybe you're practicing gospel intentionality together with others in some sort of effort, think about this as we go through these four thoughts. Here's four things I think that present mindsets of friends on mission 
together. First is this, we see value in everyone. We see the value in everyone. Did these guys value their friend? Absolutely. Now, we, we live in a 21st century world where largely in the Western world, when somebody has a disability, we are filled with compassion and care. And so this seems normal and natural to us, but I just need to point out that for the ancient world, what these guys did was revolutionary and radical for two reasons. One, the Jewish world. Two, the Roman world. This was the setting this story was happening in. And what's the clue we're given about how the Jewish world thinks of this fellow? What's the first thing Jesus says to him? Son, your sins are forgiven. Why does Jesus say that? Because in the Jewish world, for many of them, and this was not taught in their Jewish scriptures, it was stuff that had been added to the scriptural thought of the day by the religious teachers and the law keepers, and they, they had landed in places of assumption that, wait, if people are quite ill with things like disabled conditions, it actually could be an indicator of their own sin or the sin of their parents. They thought somehow maybe God was judging them. So this paralytics brought, and in the Jewish world, to many of the Jewish leaders of the day, they're thinking, oh, he's getting what he deserved because of his sin. So it, it was doubly shocking to those kind of people that the first words out of Jesus' mouth was, son, your sins are forgiven. Because they thought, well, he's got sin, that's why he's in this condition. And Jesus addressed that first. It was also shocking to them because they thought, who in the world has the authority to forgive sins but God alone? Well, what a gesture. Yahweh is walking in human form. It's Jesus, Yahweh himself, saying, well, I forgive. I forgive. In the Jewish world, they thought this man was a sinner. In the Roman world, they thought this man was subhuman. There's horrific accounts in historical records of how in the Roman dominant culture of the day, those with disabilities were treated. If you had a disability, you were maybe okay if you were rich. They could kind of forgive that and get, get beyond it. Even some of the emperors ended up becoming disfigured or having a disability later in life, but they were, they were emperors or they were elite, so you could kind of get past that. But if somebody wasn't in a wealthy class within Rome and they had a disability, I mean, it was... It was as if, to them, they were considered a waste of space. They were a little less than human. In fact, there's records of some wealthy Roman people buying disabled people for entertainment or to treat them as if they were a pet in their home. Awful. I mean, in our world, it's just unfathomable. We can't imagine. Like, how could you even think of a person that way? That's so awful. So imagine what this man's plight is like. In his Jewish context, they think he's a sinner. For the Roman culture that surrounds the area and is pressing in, they think he's probably subhuman. So it actually took quite a bit of courage for these friends to consider him their friend, right? Astonishing. Wonderful. To the point that they're willing to carry him around and bring him to a place where he can get hope and where he can get help. I wonder if you can recall just some of the people that Jesus spent his time with. They were not the people that fit in best into culture and to society. Tax collectors, prostitutes, lepers, Samaritans, people who are racially thought to be on the outside. Jesus spent time with them. Sometimes we hear comments like this, God loves the unlovely. Is that true? Let me save you. No, it's not. And that might be like, what? 
because they're not unlovely. If we accept the thought that God loves the unlovely, we've actually agreed that there's something devaluing that's actually true about them. God does not love the unlovely. He loves the lovely. And he sees that all, all, 127, right? Genesis 127, created in God's image, all worthy of his love. So I guess a question for us to consider would be if Jesus was to wear a disguise that looked like you and worked where you worked or lived in your neighborhood or played the sport you like to play with friends, how would he treat some of the people who are kind of on the outside or different? How would he treat them if he was wearing your disguise? Maybe that's how we should. Amen? Amen? Okay, good. Number two. First is we see the value in everyone. Number two, we take opportunities and we make opportunities, or we make the most of opportunities and we make opportunities. Somebody else has pointed out that there are two ways to ride a wave, generally speaking. Uh, You can get a surfboard and find where circumstances, creation, weather, and all that have created waves for you and you can ride the waves that way. Or you can get behind a boat and wakeboard where now we've created waves that we can ride. One is taking advantage of the opportunity presented to us. The other is making an opportunity. And both work in God's kingdom. Look at these guys. Did they take advantage of an opportunity? Absolutely. Jesus came to their town. An opportunity was presented in front of them. Oh my goodness, he's here. Something could happen. And they seized the opportunity. And then they were met with what? A massive crowd, they couldn't say to people, excuse us, we're trying to bring our friend through here, could everybody clear out of the way, we need a six foot wide clearance to get through this crowd. People wouldn't have responded, people weren't listening. Somebody could have been the one to say, well, we tried. Have you ever been there? That was a good effort. Sorry, bud. And off they go. No, they saw an opportunity And when they felt they reached perhaps the end of that opportunity, they decided, now, we tried to surf, but now we're gonna wakeboard. We're gonna make our own opportunity here. One of the friends had the courage to say, you know, the roof. And the others are probably like, are you kidding me? Now, historians would say, this is probably Jesus' house. Like, he wasn't the owner of it, but he was living there. It may have been Peter uh, and James, their home. So some of them are like, are you kidding? Like, Jesus lives here. We're not gonna just mess up his house like this. If he's God, we've got problems if we open his roof up. (laughs) And somebody's like, but what if he's merciful enough? What if he could, what if he could, are you kidding me? Okay, let's wakeboard. And up the roof they go. They make an opportunity. It may have started with one of them and their ideas, but all of them joined on board. So I guess the question for you and I to consider as we approach this summer, which is a great opportunity by the way, summer is always a great time to build friendships with people. What opportunities could you make? What opportunities could you take this summer with your friends who don't know Jesus yet? Could you host a barbecue? Could you do something at the beach? Maybe you get invited by somebody to go camping and normally you're like, "Mm, no, no. Maybe this year you say, Okay, we'll join. And you take the opportunity to sow into friendship in a new way. These guys took the opportunity they saw, and when it seemed that the opportunity ended, they made their own, and it resulted in something powerful. Third thing, mission mindsets for friends. 
We is greater than me. You've heard me say things like this before on Sundays. We is greater than me. What happened to this paralytic man could not have happened if it wasn't a group of people helping him. One person couldn't have done this on his own. We know it was at least four, because four were carrying him. There may have been other friends that were part of it as well. But there was at least four. No one person could have done it on their own. It may have started with one person and their idea, but everyone got to feel like they were part of it in the end. Can you imagine being one of the friends? Somebody in that group of friends was the one saying, I don't think this is gonna work. This is a bad idea. We shouldn't do this. Jesus is a busy guy. What if he's got wrathful words for us if we do this? One of them was that guy. And some of us know what it's like to be that person. We just don't want to admit it. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. But some of us are that person. And you know what? In spite of being that person, that person got to see as well. I was part of it. I was carrying one end of the stretcher. And he got healed. They were part of it. That's how merciful God is. You might be the person in this church saying, well, I don't know about this. Do we have a policy on that yet? Blah, 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 blah. Hey, it's okay. Jesus is still going to use us. He's that good. Amen. Amen. I remember um, a missional group, a small group that we were part of several years ago. And some of you have heard me talk about this a little over the last while. <clears throat> um, we were very eclectic. <laughs> there was about 30 people that were part of our small group. And, um, but we would sort of subdivide our small group into small DNA groups. So we took care of discipleship and care that way, but then we'd be kind of on mission in our neighborhood together as a group of 30, throwing parties and all this. And because we were so eclectic, I mean, we had several misfits in our group. You know what I mean by that? Just people who maybe in a lot of other social settings wouldn't find a sense of connection that easily. But they belonged, and they were part with us. And this one guy in particular, I mean, he just, he was very comfortable in his own skin. He didn't care that people had opinions about his appearance. <laughs> and... Um, he was brilliant as well, and that almost became a challenge for his ability to socially relate with people. But he was part of our group. And I remember, and some of you have heard me tell this whole story another time earlier, and I won't go into it now, but we saw this couple come to faith in our group at one point in its story. And one was this spiritualist woman, and then her partner was this atheist who graduated from the top university in China at the top of his class. He was brilliant. And you know who was a key part of them coming to faith? This misfit. And he didn't know it. But he was the only one who could kind of speak in an intelligible way with this genius from China. And they befriended each other. And they could relate. And I remember sitting with him after this couple came to faith. I said, you are such an important part of our community here. And you just being you. You being with us. You sitting at a table and eating a meal and chatting across about scientific stuff none of us understand was so important in this journey of faith for them. We is better than me. That misfit in this group, on his own, he would have thought, I could never be part of leading anybody to Christ. But guess what? When he's working together with others, we all get the chance to be part of what God's doing. That's why it's so important for us to be friends with one another and friends with people who don't know Jesus yet. Friends, you and I should not be lone rangers trying to get it done on ourselves. I've got a fun question for everybody here. How many of you have a gallbladder? Be proud. You shouldn't be ashamed. Real high. I don't. Well, I do. It's just not with me right now. I would suspect it's in a landfill somewhere if there's anything left of it. I know that's a bit more than you bargained for. 
I didn't remove it myself, don't worry. Um, I had help. <clears throat> uh, it's not doing its job anymore. Did you know that? <laughs> because disconnected parts of the body don't function the way they're supposed to. Sorry for the gross illustration, but you get the point. We can't be lone rangers in the body of Christ. You have a part to play in God's work through Christ's body, which is us. Thank you for being you. You're so important in our church family. I wonder if some of us in this church family could be the ones that say, hey, let's, you know, in, in, in those, those friends of the paralytic, one of them was the one to say, hey, let's grab him and bring him to Jesus. One of them said that, right? I wonder if in our church family we could have a few more people who step up and say, you know what, I'm gonna start saying let's more often. I'm gonna step up and start saying, what if we more often? And I'm not talking about you coming to me and saying, hey, we should do this big event as a church, let's do this. I'm talking about you talking to your friends that you're on mission with in this community and saying, what if we did this? Let's do this, let's try that. And I wonder if we could have some more people that would step up and say, when they hear things like that, sure, I'm in. Or say things like this, you know, I've never done that before, but let's give it a try. Because I think that's the example we have from these friends that brought their paralytic friend to Jesus that day. Fourth thing, lastly, Friends who are on mission together have a mindset like this. We see what could be. We see what's possible. You see, the, the first friend that stepped up and said, hey, let's, let's bring our buddy to Jesus. There was something in his heart that could see what could happen if their paralytic friend was with Jesus, even just for a moment. What if we could see him walk? We don't know how he became a paralytic. Could have been that way for life, could have been a recent accident or injury or something like that. They could think, what if he could be healed? We'll get him back on the volleyball team. <laughs> I mean, they just had some sort of thought, like, what if he could run again? What if we can do this again? What if he can work again? And then his family doesn't have to be impoverished any longer. What if, what if, what if, what if? It's so easy to see how difficult and awful our world is, and if we're not careful, our minds begin to follow along in agreement, we just think this is getting worse and worse and worse and everybody's an idiot and shut up. <laughs> that, that was just a quote, I wasn't actually using another one. Um, but what if you and I learned to wear different lenses that thought like, well what if this person had an encounter with Jesus? What could change? Well, what would it be like? I want you to think of one of your most difficult friends or neighbors co-workers, somebody who doesn't know Jesus yet, think about them. What if they met Jesus? What if they had one momentary real encounter with Jesus? Imagine that. Can you? Can you? Will you? I wanna ask you to imagine that. I remember um, several years ago in a neighborhood that we were living in, I had lots of faith for God to do great things in our neighborhood, and we did see a lot of really exciting things happen there. But as we're getting to know neighbors, it's easy to have faith for people the less you know about them, right? <laughs> and then you get to know them, you're like, ooh, oh boy, okay. Sorry, God, this one's... Uh, 
give your energy over here, it'll be better used. God says, I don't know about this one. And so we had this one neighbor to the one side, and she was neighborly enough. <laughs> Her name was Maureen. She was retired. She gave the municipality a lot of feedback. <laughs> and they listened. We got a new bus stop. And it was covered, so nobody would get rained on in it. Um, I remember getting out of my car one day and I had groceries and I'm walking up the stairs to our front door where we lived at the time and she got out of her vehicle around the same time and so I glanced over and said, hey Maureen, nice to see you. Hi Mike. And we walked into our doors and I remember just looking at her as I put the groceries down, opened the door and then I grabbed the groceries, stepped in the house and I just thought, ah. And it was a real moment. I thought, I don't think I could ever see her coming to faith. <laughs> and months earlier, boy, I had faith for her to come to Jesus too. But knowing, knowing what I knew about her then, I was like, uh, I don't know. And I carried on into the house, and it was like the Spirit of God immediately just arrested my thoughts in that moment and confronted me. And I can't say it was audible, but here's the sentiment of what I heard from the Spirit. Mike, if you want to believe that about her, fine. But you know what? You'll, start, you'll stop partnering with what I'm doing in her life. I thought, oh. Hmm. I'm gonna, in spite of what I know about her, in spite of what I see about her, I'm gonna choose to believe that she could be one encounter with Jesus away from a total transformation. I'm so proud of just how God has worked and helped <laughs> in our lives because we still have so much room to grow in this. And when I think back on how my wife Laura befriended Leslie, uh -huh, everybody remember the name Leslie? She went to Tim Hortons. Um, Laura befriended Leslie. And there was a lot of things about Leslie that maybe would have made us think, I don't know if she would be open to Jesus. But that didn't stop Laura from befriending her, from showing up at coffees and teas and going for walks with her, from inviting her over again and then again, and then including her in events at our house. It didn't stop Laura from after a little bit of time had passed and we realized Leslie's a little bit open, we think. It didn't stop Laura from thinking at Christmas, we should buy her a Bible for Christmas. And so we did. And that led to some of the moments you heard me talking about last week where over time, Leslie started piecing together things about Jesus God and faith, and it started with parties, and then it came to small group, and then she started showing up on Sundays, and then in one of our small groups before communion, she's sharing an update from her life saying, you know, roll up the rim, I went through the drive-through, I said, God, if you're real, I want to win, and I'm shuddering in unbelief, I'm like, oh God, what did you do? <laughs> Have you ever been in a moment where you're like, I don't know how to handle what's gonna happen next here? Because I think both options are bad. <laughs> if she wins, everybody's going to Tim Hortons after this and testing God. And if she loses, I don't know what she's going to think. And she, so she had us on the edge of our seats. She said, I, I drank my coffee and then I rolled up the room. And we're like, uh-huh. She said, I won. I won. And she started weeping. He's real, he's real, he's real, he's real, he's real. 
<sighs> and I didn't have a theological response for that at all. The best I could do is I said, Leslie, that's amazing. Leslie, I bet if you hadn't won, you'd still be trusting Jesus today too. She says, I know I would be. <laughs> Friends, anyone could be one encounter with Jesus away from total transformation. It took time with Leslie. It's taken time with some of you who have come to Christ recently. But I want you to see and join with me in seeing with the eyes of faith that anyone could be one encounter with Jesus away from total transformation. I want you to think in John chapter 4 about a Samaritan woman at a well. And Jesus is thirsty. And this woman is known in her community for all the wrong reasons. And there was all kinds of barriers between her and Jesus. Gender barriers, social barriers, ethnic barriers. And Jesus crossed all of those barriers and loved and dignified this person. And she was the last person anybody would have picked for Sychar, that little Samaritan town, to become a hub of revival. It says that the whole town came to meet Jesus after her life was transformed by Jesus. No one would have picked her, but anyone could be one experience with Jesus away from total transformation. I think in Mark chapter, I think it's five, six, and seven, you find the story of the demon, uh, the demonized guy that the you know, the one that's naked and running around living in tombs and all of that? Nobody picks him to be the next guy to, to, to convert to Christ, right? We find out in, in Mark chapter 8 that Jesus experiences a, a regional move where people are coming, flocking to him. When he had been there in Mark chapter 5, everybody asked him to leave. What changed between Mark chapter 5 and Mark chapter 8? This demonized guy who was set free by Jesus went and actually told people what God had done from him for him. And instead, instead of that region saying, no, 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 we don't want you, Jesus, they flock to him the next time he shows up. Nobody would have picked that demonized guy, naked, living in tombs, to be the key to a move of God in that community. But Jesus sees people differently, doesn't he? And anyone, your worst neighbor, <laughs> your worst coworker, the person you like least on your team or whatever, they could be one experience with Jesus away from total transformation. Think about Saul who became Paul, literally walking around on assignment, responsible for seeing Christians killed. Nobody expects him to be the one that God's gonna reach next, but he does, because anybody could be one experience, one encounter with Jesus away from total transformation. It's not a point in this message today, but my final thought as we move towards communion is this. It kind of, I guess, goes with the second thought about opportunities. What I love about these guys in this story is they just had this mindset of whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. At least one of them had that mindset and got his other friends on board. Whatever it takes. Yeah, we see opposition. Yeah, we see a problem here. But whatever it takes. There's a roof. Whatever it takes, we can get through that roof. We can do it. I just cut my fingernails. I don't think I can scrape a roof open. We're going to find a shovel. It's okay. Whatever it takes. This week on Wednesday, it was the day that was the worst day for my mother-in-law where we thought, I think this is the end. And my wife, Laura, was by herself in the hospital that afternoon with my mother-in-law in a cardiac intensive care unit. 
where normally there's just one nurse who's sitting at a desk watching my mother-in-law all day long, and if everything's going okay, every machine's just sort of casually doing its beep, and all the things that are plugged into her are just taking care of her, and they're monitoring and they're monitoring, but that's good. But that afternoon, my wife's sitting there watching a nurse named Drew give the best hours of his day and the best years of his career to frantically work at saving my mother-in-law's life. And a doctor's at work there and several other nurses had to jump in. And for hours, it wasn't just sort of casually watching the beeps and adjusting things. They're constantly changing things and swapping things out because they were all in whatever it takes to keep this woman alive. And they worked and they worked and they worked and they worked. And she lives to this moment. And what if you and I treated lives like that too? That's a physical life and it matters. There are spiritual lives and they're eternal and they're hanging in limbo right now. Your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, classmates, people you spend time with that don't know Jesus yet, their spiritual lives hang in a balance. And what if we said, whatever it takes, I'm getting through that roof. We're getting them to Jesus somehow. These friends had a whatever it takes mindset. And I present to you today, Jesus, the true and better friend who broke through a roof for you and I. Whatever it takes to rescue your life and mine. You mean it takes a cross? That's why it said in Hebrews, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. Why? Because I'm on a rescue mission to reach lost people. He did it for you and I, whatever it takes. Isaiah 64, one says this, coming from the cries of the Old Testament world, oh God, that you would rend the heavens and come down. God, why does it feel like you're so far away? This could get better if only you could come close to us and show up and rescue us. And that's how Isaiah nearly concludes. Oh, that you'd rend the heavens and come down and be close to us. And how does Matthew begin? And how does Mark begin? In Mark chapter one, when Jesus is baptized, I think Mark, who's writing for Peter, is thinking about Isaiah 64. Oh, that you'd rend the heavens and come down. Because when it talks about Jesus' baptism in the book of Mark, it says, the heavens were torn open. And the Spirit descended like a dove on Jesus, and the Father spoke, and there's this trinity of experience, Father, Son, Spirit, all in one moment. What's happening? The heavens have been opened. God found a way to claw through the roof that was a barrier between him and us. He says, that's it. I'm coming, whatever it takes to find you. And when Jesus is crucified, in Mark chapter 15, there was a temple curtain. It was a barrier between the most holy place where it seemed God lived, and then the rest of the temple and the rest of humanity. And only one person once a year could go in that place. And do you know what that temple curtain represented in the Old Testament world? The heavens, the skies. It was decorated blue with ornaments that made it look as if it was the skies. And what happened? That temple curtain, which was 70 feet tall and three inches thick, was torn from top to bottom, not bottom to top as if man could make a way, but top to bottom. God stood up in the Holy of Holies and rends the heavens and comes into our lives by his spirit. No longer is God contained to a little box in a Holy of Holies. He's free because of the price paid by Jesus at Calvary to fill your life and mine, whatever it takes, the cross, the resurrection, 
He comes for you and I. This is our Jesus. Let's stand together. I want to lead us in a prayer to conclude our time. As you are standing, I'm going to call our prayer ministry team to come forward. Maybe today, some of you, there's a burden in your heart. You need somebody to come alongside you. I want to encourage more and more people. All of us know what it's like to have hard stuff going on. You can't do it by yourself. You need people praying with you. Maybe you've got it covered at home and other friends are already praying for you. Why not have more? (laughs) Those who come forward offering prayer are known by our church family, happy to help and serve. So following the service, if you need prayer, please come forward. Would you join me in just placing your hand over your heart as we conclude today? Father, we acknowledge Jesus and our allegiance is to him and him alone. We forsake all other loves and idolatries and distractions. We turn our hearts again towards Jesus, the one who rescues even when we're sinking. Thank you for making a way. Thank you, Jesus, for being the true and better friend, for rending the heavens and coming down, for bringing us hope, bringing us help and we still need it. Father, as we go into your world now on your mission, where the Comox Valley is full of so many people who don't yet know the kind of hope and help and love, truth that's available through Jesus Christ, would you empower us? Would you knit us together? We need you. Father, we want to see people experience this love. We know there's so many people that are one experience with you away from a total transformation. Would you use us this week? Give us eyes of faith to see people how you do this week. We pray this now in Jesus' name. And everyone said with a smile, amen. Amen. I heard your smile. That's so wonderful. Please enjoy the sun this afternoon. God bless you. Have a wonderful, wonderful week. If you need prayer of any kind, please come forward. We'd love to pray with you.